We pray, Father, for your church this morning, that would you please, by your Spirit, work among us, that we may be those who have ears to hear and hearts to obey what we hear Jesus speaks and says to the churches, that we will be a church that we give you glory and honour. In his name we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, good morning. Those of you who have not met me, my name is Kenneth. I'm one of the pastors here in SMAC. And this morning, I have the privilege of uh, studying together with you uh, from the book of Revelation, chapter 2. You'll be glad to know that we are not going through all the passages that was read uh, to us by Kelly, even though you might be interested in the number 666. Come for the seminar, and you'll find out more. Today, we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 18, looking at the church in Thyatira. Okay? Well, the church, Jesus charged the church in Thyatira for being tolerant, tolerant towards false teachers and their teaching. False teachers, heresies, bad theology, bad teaching. What kind of reaction does this topic arose in you personally? Or what kind of reaction does it arise in us as a church? How have we been responding to such a topic? Health and wealth gospel, Jehovah Witnesses, Benihin, Universalism, Roman Catholicism, Joe Austin, Church of the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, Modalism, Witness Lee, Arianism, Joyce Mayer, Transubstantiation, Rob Bell. How did you respond as you hear me calling out those names? Well, within SMAC, I think there are broadly three kinds of responses. Some of you are indifferent, neutral, or even clueless. Basically, you have not been bothered by this topic. You might have heard it mentioned here and there once in a while, but it has not warranted your attention to take a closer look. Some of you are agitated by the topic. You are fired up each time something close is being mentioned. You are alert. You are constantly, proactively guarding against false teaching. Some of you may be feeling deflated. You are emotionally drained. You are tired. The work of constantly discerning and correcting false teaching seems unending. You wonder if it is really necessary to continue this way. It's tiring. I think these are the three kinds of attitudes towards false teaching, more or less, that represent us as a church in smack. Indifferent, alert, or deflated. In the letter that we'll be studying this morning, Jesus, by his Spirit, was speaking to a church that was probably similar to ours, with his church members having similar kind of attitudes. So as we hear Jesus addressing the Christians in Thyatira, he has something to say to each one of us here today concerning our attitudes towards false teachers and their teaching. So let us begin. Verse 18, take a look. 
first half of the verse, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? Thyatira. Let me first give you some background about Thyatira that will help us understand this letter better. In Acts chapter 16, Thyatira was mentioned. Lydia, the businesswoman in purple cloth, was from this city. Thyatira was a city of great growth and prosperity. People there are enjoying stable conditions under the Roman rule. It was a center for manufacturing and commerce. And as a result of such economic growth, there were a large number of trade guilds in Thyatira. Trade guild is basically an organization, an association of men sharing the same trade. They form clubs for mutual assistance and protection. Archaeologists have found inscriptions in Thyatira mentioning guilds for wool workers, linen workers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronzesmith. Basically, trade guilds were very much interwoven into the daily life of every single person in this city. Now, here's the important thing that you must understand about these guilds. You see, each guild has a guardian god. And each guild held religious-based communal meals and rituals to honor the respective gods. So the situation is this. If you are a Christian, if you wish to get ahead in this world, you must belong to a guild for your work. And if you belong to a guild, your membership implies that you must attend the guild festivals and you must worship its gods. And the divine guardian of the city of Diatira was a god by the name of Apollo Tyrinos. He was worshipped by the guilds as the son of God, the god Zeus. So that is Tyatira. It is prosperous and it is a religious city. Keep this background in mind as we continue to read this letter and what Jesus has to say to them. Verse 18 continues by saying, verse 18, Jesus says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. The letter begins with a description of the one who is speaking. This is he who will be charging and warning them in the rest of the letter. This is he who will be encouraging and demanding them to listen. So who is he? Well, firstly, he is the Son of God. This description alludes very strongly to Psalm 2 and Daniel 7. Read to us by George earlier, Psalm 2 verse 7, God identified the Messiah as his son. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So by quoting Psalm 2, Jesus in Revelation is saying that he alone is the true son of God. God himself testified to this. Do you see the significance of these introductions to the Christians in Thyatira? Remember the trade guilds that I mentioned to you earlier, which Christians depended on for their livelihood, and where Apollos, the son of the god Zeus, was worshipped? Jesus wants the church in Thyatira to get this right, that he, the resurrected Christ, alone is the true son of God, whom they should worship, whom they should fear, 
not Apollo, the fake son of God. And by quoting Psalm 2, Jesus is also saying that he is the son of God of Psalm 2 who has come to judge. Psalm 2 verse 9 says, He will break the people with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like the potter's vessels. And this part of the psalm, as you will see later, it will be quoted again within this letter. This implies that what Jesus wants them and wants us to understand about him is that he is the judge of Psalm 2. The focus here is clearly judgment. The judgment theme is further reinforced if you continue to read verse 18. He says, Jesus has eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. This imagery alludes to Daniel 10. Daniel 10. Eyes are like flame of fire. It expresses the penetrating insight of the one who is sovereign. Not only over the seven churches, but over the entire course of history, as you see in Daniel. This penetrating power of Christ, his ability to see through things, makes him a perfect judge of all human beings. For he's able to search the minds and the hearts and therefore execute judgment according to what each deserve. The shining bronze feet, well, they portray the strength and the stability of the judgment. His judgment is firm and is certain. So all in all, Jesus is introducing himself here as a divine judge. He's reminding the Christians in Thyatira, and he's reminding us that there is a judgment day. It hasn't come yet, but it is real. It will come and he is the judge. On that day, Jesus will be the judge, and these are the characteristics of his judgment. It will be rigorously, exhaustively thorough. Nothing escapes him. Nothing escapes his blazing eyes. And it will be firm, it will be certain, and it will be unmovable. And with that, Jesus sets the stage for what he wants to tell Thyatira. So now let's take a look at verse 19 of what he charged them with. Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your later works exceed the first. The church was first being praised for there is a love among them. They love God, they love Jesus, they love one another, they love the lost. And they continue to be in trustful reliance on Christ as their Savior. And in fact, they are growing in the service of Christ. There is progress in the life of the church. They were doing more than when they first began. The church seemed to be pretty healthy, isn't it? But take a look at verse 20. Jesus charged them. Verse 20 but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants, 
to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So what are they charged with? They are being charged for being tolerant. That is, they permitted, they let something continue. They allowed false teachers to influence God's servants to compromise with idolatrous aspects of the pagan society. The woman Zezebel here could be an individual false teacher, or it could be referring to a community of false teachers, just as how in 2 John 1 refers the church as the elect lady and her children. But either way, what the church is doing is that they are allowing false teaching to influence the members. The name Zezebel was probably used deliberately to allude us to the Zezebel in the Old Testament. She was found in 1 and 2 Kings. There we see that she incited King Ahab and the nation Israel to compromise and fornicate by worshipping Baal. You can read of this in 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. So similarly, the Jezebel figure we find here in the church of Thyatira was leading Christians to forsake loyalty to God by promoting a tolerance towards pagan practices. Perhaps they argue that it is okay for Christians to go along to the guild requirements of worshipping pagan gods. Perhaps they thought that since idol is nothing at all, eating food sacrificed to idols is permissible and participating in the related sexual activities is okay as well. In any case, these false teachers were seducing God's people away from God to conform to the pagan society. Notice though that the charge here was not that the church actively promoted false teaching. They did not do that. They were charged for being tolerant. They were passive. They were doing nothing. They simply permitted false teaching to continue in the church. And they had seemingly allowed it to continue for quite a while. For in verse 21, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Jesus is charging this church for tolerating, for doing nothing. What Jesus is about to say next will probably or have probably shocked many in the church. After laying down his charge against them, he warned them, he impressed them upon the gravity of the situation. In verse 22, Jesus said this. Take a look. 22, behold, I will throw her unto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Hey, wait a minute, Jesus. Why all of a sudden this talk about making people suffer and killing them? Cool down and relax, Jesus. Why so serious? 
killing people? That, I guess, would probably have been the reaction of many in Thyatira. The fact that they tolerated false teaching shows that they wouldn't have imagined the gravity of the situation. That requires Jesus to kill people? Well, it is so serious that Jesus himself will punish and kill these false teachers. And not just them, but all in the church who followed her teaching. That would have been a shock to them, don't you think so? How about you? Are you shocked by Jesus' reaction? Are you taken aback by Jesus' severe judgment here? Does it match your view of false teaching in the church that it is that serious? Do you find that Jesus is a little bit too overreacting, a little bit too extreme here? Well, if that's you, listen carefully. For God wrote Revelation specially for you. For you have failed to see false teachers and false teachings for what they truly are, their true colors. Revelation is written to open our eyes to see the true spiritual, spiritual reality behind the physical world that we observe merely by sight. Do you remember the extra readings done by Kelly this morning from Revelation 13, 16, and 19? If you don't, let me help you. In these chapters... John, the writer of Revelation, is trying to show us the heavenly perspective of the true character of false teachers. In all these passages that have been read, the false teachers, the prophets, were connected closely to the satanic beast who is at war against God. That means when we allow false teachers to continue their teaching in our church, we are effectively allowing the satanic beast to devour God's people through their deceptive doctrines. False teachers are not simply false teachers. They are under the influence of Satan to wage war against God to devour God's people. In Mark 13, Jesus already spoke of the false teachers. They are false cries and false prophets who come to lead the people astray. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul calls them fierce wolves who will not spare the flock. Speaking twisted things, they draw God's people away. So with such spiritual insight and such spiritual lenses, we can see now, can we not, why false teachers and false teaching cannot be tolerated in God's church. Why firm actions must be taken against them. Why they must not be given a free reign to propagate their destructive lies, to lead people away from worshipping the true God. So if you are someone here today who has been indifferent, who has been neutral with regard to false teaching, you haven't been bothered much about this topic, you have to think again, isn't it? For false teachers lead people away from worshipping 
the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and lead them to worship false gods. And by doing so, they are leading them directly into the judgment hands of Jesus Christ, the judge. They will be killed along with the false teachers. This is serious. Now, having charged and warned those in the church who were tolerating and the, tolerating the false teachers, Jesus now moved on to encourage those in the church who were persevering. Those who have not been led astray by the false teachers, those who have not tolerated Zezebels, like some of you. Verse 24 says, But to the rest of you in Tyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Some in the church of Tyatira were feeling deflated, tired. They are mentally and emotionally drained. Why? You see, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the false teachers as deceitful workmen. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. In 1 John 4, John asked the church not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And in 2 Peter 1, it speaks of false prophets secretly bringing destructive heresies. When you put the picture together, all that means is that the work of constantly discerning, correcting, identifying, rebuking, false teaching is not a stroll in the park. It is very tiring, and it can seem unending. Sometimes the Tyrant Christians wonder, is this really necessary that we continue to do this work? Must it continue this way? Well, to this group of Christians, Jesus said to them, continue to hold fast to the uncompromising stand until he comes. Continue having a firm grip on sound doctrine until he comes. Keep fighting against false teaching until he comes. Are some of you here feeling that way today? Deflated? Tired? You just want a break. Jesus says to you, in verse 24, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast, hold fast to what you have until I come. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, is in, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach 
until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, brothers and sisters, Revelation tells us not to expect rest from fighting false teaching until Jesus comes. As long as you and I, as disciples of Jesus, we are still alive, as long as Jesus hasn't returned, expect to keep fighting, to keep holding fast to the teaching of Christ. Life until Jesus' return is a life of patient endurance. We will rest when Jesus returns, not now. When he returns, he'll be the perfect judge. And now, in the closing words of his letter, Jesus gives more reason to the church to keep holding on to sound doctrine. He says in verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, that's the one who holds on to firm doctrine, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And as, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received the authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. That is, the one who conquers is the one who perseveres to the end. The one who keeps holding on to the only saving message of Christ and him alone. Not compromising, not tolerating false teaching. With patient endurance, you keep plowing on and keep believing in faith in Christ alone. And to such you persevere to the end, Christ will share his rule. For Christ has already received the authority from the Father. He has already conquered. And to him who conquers, we will share his rule. And as usual, in all the letters in verse 29, he exhorts and he warns again, he who has the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me conclude with a few uh, thoughts I have on the implications of this passage to us. Footnotes, if you like. False teaching actually kills. False teaching actually kills. The difficult part about that statement is false teaching doesn't kill immediately. But it kills. That's what the passage is saying. Our eternal destiny is at stake. Are you disturbed or are you concerned that you are someone, if you are someone, who is being tossed through and fro by different winds of doctrines and teachings. If you are not, the passage is warning you. False teaching matters. It kills. You don't see the consequence immediately. Jehovah Witnesses live on. But the passage tells us the day will come that false teachers will be judged. Secondly, it means that studying matters. Studying matters. It matters to two people. First, studying matters for your preachers, 
for your pastors who teach you the word, who teach you the word. Your pastors must be rooted in the word. That means that they don't prepare for 10 minutes and come up here and speak what is off their mind. Your pastors, you must, as a congregation, you must ensure that your pastor spend time in their studies, studying God's word, teaching you sound doctrine. You must make sure that your pastors have enough money to have a good library so that they are rooted in sound doctrine. Look after your preachers and your pastors to make sure that they study God's word, that they teach you sound doctrine because you are being fed by them. Secondly, study matters for you. That brings a whole new dimension to growth groups, isn't it? Growth group is not just a time for us to have fun and vague fellowship. Growth group is a time for Christians to come and gather around God's word. Are you concerned if your brother and your sister next to you is learning how to read Revelation for themselves? Are you concerned that your brother and sister next to you is discerning with what he or she is listening from the pulpit and checking that what the preacher is saying is what God's word is saying and not being tossed through and fro and led astray by false teachers? Growth group matters. You have, many of you have just gone through the series of loving the church. Part of loving the church, or at the heart of loving the church, is helping your brother and sister to grow in the knowledge of God and rooted in sound doctrine and not being led astray by false teaching. For their eternal destiny is at stake. Thirdly, it means that your private reading of the Bible matters. Some of you may feel that, oh, they're just, it's so difficult to interpret the Bible. They're just too many technical jargons. Goesworthy once said, in response to this, a housewife told him that, well, I'm just a housewife. I'm, I'm satisfied with just a simple gospel. I don't need to learn to interpret. Or a mechanic tells him the same thing. But he says that's fascinating because a housewife is able to operate a sewing machine that is made in Dutch or Germany and able to flip through the instruction manuals that is written so technically and studied and able to operate the machines. And a car mechanic is able to fix a car that is so complicated and be able to study it for hours and manage it. So what excuse do we have? The issue of the Bible is not that it is too technical or too difficult that goes beyond everyone. It is just a matter of you spending the time to study and learning it. You can do it privately and you can help one another do, do it. Interpretation of scripture is not only in the hands of the preachers. Our job as preachers is to help you to interpret and understand the Bible and listening to God yourself. Last point, I thought, is no one and no church call themselves Bible teachers, false teachers. Every website that I search says that they are Bible-believing church. That means that we need to be firmly rooted in God's word ourselves. 30 minutes of sermon each week is not enough to root you in sound doctrine. You did not get your diploma or your degree or your master's in 30 minutes a week, did you? No. So to root yourself in sound doctrine, 
we need to spend the time to help ourselves, to help one another with God's Spirit helping us. Because false teachers are in disguise. It's hard to discern. So, help one another with the help of God to get ourselves rooted in sound doctrine. And lastly, we should not be concerned only for ourselves in this generation, in this church, that we are rooted in sound doctrine. Are we concerned about the next generation? Are we preparing the next generation to be rooted in sound doctrine? You are a matured Christian. You feel that, well, I'm rooted. I'm sure I'm going to get to heaven all the way. But are you helping a younger Christian, someone who just became a Christian, to be rooted in firm doctrines? For firm doctrines matters. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, who is the truth. And in him, we have all the wisdom that we so lack. And through the Spirit work in our lives, you open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to see the deceitfulness in ourselves and in this world that lead us to worship false gods. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. We ask, Father, that by your Spirit, you will continue to help us as a church, as, an indi- as individuals, to, to be rooted in your word. Help us to help one another in putting time and effort in studying your word. Help us to encourage and to enthuse one another to know more about who you are and who your son is and what you have revealed to us in your word. Put in us a hunger and a thirst for your word, a hunger for the truth. Help us to build one another up in love, in small groups, in, in all different kinds of settings that we have. And we ask, Father, that we will be known as a church who hold firmly to the truth and to sound doctrine, to the words of our Lord Jesus, till the very end, with your help. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with that message, it gives a brand new dimension to what the Apostles' Creed is, isn't it? It is not an empty recitation of words that we just go through traditionally week after week. These are truths that we hold on to as a church. So as a church, let us rise together now and affirm this truth together, holding on to sound doctrine. Shall we do that?